Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. Hello and welcome to the Investing for Life podcast. I'm Douglas Isles and my goal is to help you, the listener, by encouraging my guests to unpack their successes using a framework modeled on Platinum's time-tested investment principles. We'll explore temporary setbacks that shaped our guests, we'll learn about the long-term steps they've taken to ensure they're on the right path, and we'll hear how they stand out from the crowd. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Nicolette Rubenstein. Nicolette is a non-executive director in the wealth management industry with a number of board positions in leading companies. In 2020, she became a director of Greenpeace Australia Pacific Limited and was president of the Actuaries Institute in 2019, as well as being a director of ASFA for eight years. Before her board career, Nicolette had general manager roles at CBA and Colonial First State. She's a qualified actuary, holds an executive MBA, and is a fellow of the AICD. She's also an author of the book Not Guilty, which is a guide for career mums. And in 2014, she was named as one of the top 10 most powerful part-timers. So Nicolette, thank you for joining the show. I want to start somewhere which is very personal and, and, and perhaps a difficult topic, but investing for life is all about dealing with setbacks. And I know that in your, in your personal life, you've had to deal um, with some, some very difficult times. And in particular, I think to deal with one miscarriage would be a tremendously difficult for anyone, but, but you've had to deal with five. And I, I'd love to just sort of understand how you coped with that and, and I guess bounced back so many times? Yeah, so I had my miscarriages between my f- three between my first and my second child and uh, two between my second and my third child. Um, and, you know, quite, quite a four of them were fair, fairly early on. One of them was at three and a half months. So that was the, the most devastating. And, you know, the process that you go through, particularly as a woman, I mean, the, the father would go through this as well. But, um, you know, once you find out you're pregnant, you you just see a, another path and life ahead of you. And you start thinking about that child. You start thinking about going on maternity leave. You start thinking about names. You start thinking about, you know, the, the baby's room. So, you know, the part of the devastation is actually then rejigging your whole, you know, life um path that you can see for the future. Um the the one that was at three and a half months as well, that was uh, you know, by that time you've already told people about it. And in in terms of bouncing back, you know, I'm very much a believer of um don't keep doing the same thing <laughs> and expecting a different result. And I'd gone for every um kind of medical checkup possible and just being told to keep trying actually. So there was no medical, Western medical intervention, I should say. So I ended up going down a kind of Chinese medicine option, a lot of acupuncture, a lot of Chinese herbs, which were quite disgusting. <laughs> um, and, you know, it cost me hundreds of dollars a week actually, even, even at the time. But, you know, part of getting over it was actually having a plan and uh you know trying to do something different that i thought would get a different result and interestingly it did actually work <laughs> did it get easier the when you've experienced something traumatic 
multiple times? Does it does it become any easier to deal with or uh, still? No, just... no, if not harder, actually, I think, because you get even more devastated each time. Yeah. So how is that shaped then? You know, your second child, third child were born, were born. Do you think that's changed in any way the the relationship you have with them or or the way in which you value their existence? Uh, I, yeah, hugely value them. And, you know, it's funny, I always thought I would have four children. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason I think I had a lot of miscarriages was that as a professional woman leaving it quite late, so I had my first child when I was 33. Uh, so... Yeah, it 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 definitely um, impacts your your love of your children. I always wanted four children, but stopped at three because I just couldn't, you know, physically, mentally, was not <laughs> feasible to to have more, you know. And that's that's an interesting realization with trying to balance work and children. Yeah. So the, the let's say the, the the four that you you intended to have was that based upon your own upbringing in some way. Yeah, I think we often do do that. If we had a happy childhood and the number of children in our family, we often want to replicate. I, I do still joke with my family about wanting to adopt a, an African boy. <laughs> They're not really on board with that, that option. <laughs> nice idea. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about about your upbringing. Um, what sort of stands out for you? What do you, what do you remember most? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Yorkshire in England, uh, very idyllic in many ways. It was a little village bordering on the North Yorkshire Moors, um, yet tiny village. There wasn't even a pub or a shop in the village. So, you know, maybe a hundred people, village green, spent a lot of time playing with the other kids on the village green, roaming around forests. Um, and then, yeah, my, my dad is Dutch. My mom is sort of half Welsh, half English. I think that did did shape a lot of my upbringing. I, you know, these days I feel d more Dutch than anything else in many ways in terms of my outlook on life. Um, and then I went to a Quaker boarding school when I was uh, 11 um, for two years in York, which was, you know, a lot of people go, oh, no, boarding school. But it was actually an amazing experience. I absolutely loved it. And would that be something you send your own children to boarding school or...? I wouldn't actually, <laughs> but if they wanted to, I yeah. would, yeah. you know, and I have seen lo lots of kids ask to go. And then uh, when I was 13, my family emigrated from England to South Africa again, which was quite a radical yeah. thing to do. Everyone else was leaving South Africa. So, uh, and we went to a city called Durban, which is a big port. Uh, and yeah, that was right in the middle of apartheid. You know, I joined a all-white all government high school, girls' high school, um, So, and then went to university in Cape Town. Um, so that was a you know really impactful part of my upbringing, living in South Africa, uh, particularly because of apartheid. But, but also it's culturally just very different from um, England or Australia, actually. So, so with that, like the memories of, of that time of, of, I guess, of the impact of apartheid, um, did you notice it? clearly or were you kind of sheltered from it no it, it's it was unbelievably noticeable you know separate buses separate beaches and and it was i mean i think the most lasting thing i hate to say it is just guilt uh, i just feel terrible about what went on and not having impacted you know i, I kind of went there as a child effectively not really had ma made 
much impact on what was happening. And, you know, part of what I do today is a, is a response to that. So I, I chair a, a charity commit committee called Mission Vale, and we, we send money to a very poor township in South Africa, yeah. um, which, and we go and volunteer there. I t- I've taken the kids, you know, for three years to volunteer there. Yeah. Um, we'll go again this year. And what, what kind of work do you do when you're there volunteering? Well, it's uh, it's actually it's a care centre. It was started by the most incredible Irish nun who who passed away last year, unfortunately. But um, it does lots of things. So there's a garden, so you can help uh, pick vegetables. There's a food handout centre, so you can hand out bread, and they hand out like a soup mix. Um, there's a place for wrapping presents for the kids for for Christmas. Um, there's a clothing handout center. So there's quite a few things. That's why, and it, it's, it's, it's amazing exposure for my children to, uh, to see what goes on there. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's just a, a beautiful little oasis of a place in the middle of a, you know, desperately poor, um, you know, kind of 80% unemployed, 80% HIV positive community, uh, you know, very few sort of taps to service the community, even for water. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a different side of life without a doubt. And do you think the kids bring anything back from that, that they can, I don't know, share with their peers or what have you? Do you think there's a sort of almost a network effect from that, from, from their experiences? Yeah. Listen, I I mean, we did it because I was sort of trying to undo a lot of the, the privilege and I think it has had that impact. They, you know, it's sort of, uh, it, it it absolutely has helped them see and you know just have more empathy. I think yeah. um, the other interesting thing that they get to see when we go, we stay in this um, like a volunteer house, yeah. which mostly has young German and Dutch uh, kind of students. So you know twenty twenty five year old, yeah. um, and they they fly across from the other side of the world. Um, to stay in this volunteer house, and they often volunteer for months on end, actually. So the other inspiring thing that I wasn't banking on for my kids was to see these mainly girls, actually, from the other side of the world going to deepest, darkest Africa to volunteer in a township that most people would, you know, be worried that they were going to get murdered, (laughs) kind of thing. And, in fact, the first time I took the kids um, uh, to volunteer there, my husband sat next to an ex-South African at a birthday dinner and he said, uh, you do realize in South Africa, they're still raping virgins as a cure for AIDS. And I'm about to go to South Africa <laughs> with the three kids. Yeah. And my husband was like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, so anyway, I managed to co-opt my brother-in-law to come as sort of security. Body- bodyguard. <laughs> bodyguard. He's a lecturer. So he's sort of the most placid person ever. <laughs> Excellent. It's uh, a good, ex- well, an interesting experience. Um, you've twice mentioned the Dutch now once. You, and your father, this experience um, in South Africa, and, and you alluded to, to sort of feeling more Dutch than anything else. What what is that that Dutchness, if you like? What what does it feel like? Well, it, it's partly driven by you know having lived in three different countries and uh, you know feeling more global than I do a particular nationality. But the Dutchness is around, I think, the progressive thinking that the Dutch and wanting to do things differently. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to sort of think, sort of reflect on, on your career. You mentioned, um, I think, uh, first child at 33, but I think also 33, you were already doing 
very well in your career. So you were you were a young leader in what was a very successful company in our industry at the time. I, I'd just be interested in sort of reflections on that, take, taking responsibility um, at a young age. And, you know, the fund management industry sort of remains very much a dominated by, by men. So I'd be yeah, curious just to hear about the, the experiences you had along that journey. Yeah. So, gosh, I've had to think back and think, why do I think I was successful? Is that what you're saying? No, it's necessarily why you would think you were successful. When what, I guess, what, what do you re- remember at, at that time? And you, you were in a, in, in a, in a leading position at a young age. Um, so what sort of stands out? Maybe the, the succeeding in a, in a, in a very male environment, I think probably for me is, is interesting to explore. I, I think I was kind of lucky in that I combined a skill set that was quite sought after uh, at the time. And, you know, we share the actuarial yes. background. So, you know, to this day, I'm very thankful for that. And then on top of that, I did a, an MBA. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I've just got a good business brain, actually. And I, you know, the sort of, I had a couple of major opportunities that sort of um, transpired. One was when I was still at BT and I was doing product development and they offered me the head of product management role, which was actually a marketing role, bizarrely being an actuary. (laughs) Um, But it was managing a team of about 15 people and it was actually managing all of the product managers. So it gave me this amazing ability to see across the market and because there was, you know, personal super, gen, um, general investment, corporate super, private investment, wholesale, margin lending. So, and, you know, uh, the one thing I've worked out about my intelligence is I'm very good at synthesizing information. So, you know, I, I, that gave me this brilliant opportunity to see into the competitive dynamics of each part of the market uh, and, you know, look at where the opportunities were. And then I did the MBA. And then the second big opportunity was when Chris Cuff, who was CEO of Colonial First State at the time, was looking for a general manager of strategy um, role. And uh, that was actually quite an unusual role at the time. There weren't a lot of strategy people in funds management. And I think I had quite a unique combination because I'd just done the MBA and I'd sort of run product management. So that was another, you know, big step up of opportunity. Um, and again, I think it was using that that kind of quite unique combination of skills, the kind of finance actuarial coupled with the the strategy, and at that stage coupled with a bit of marketing. Because by that stage, as as hopeless as I was at the marketing, but I by that point actually learned a little bit about brand and a, a bit about writing and and marketing. And at the time, what you were doing at um, Colonial was was sort of pioneering as well. So you're building the the, the sort of platform business, that first choice, and what have you. It was ahead of its time. That's right. It was transitioning away from being a, you know, largely an Aussie equity fund manager to a platform provider. And, you know, again, that was uh, Chris Cuff's brainchild um, around uh, first choice and a a different underlying structure. So today you're sitting in in various sort of board positions and, and leadership positions, but you didn't ever become CEO? Was that something that you, you look back on and, and wish you'd been in charge or is it something you're, you're glad you, you didn't do? Um, listen, it, it suited a few things. It, it suited my skill set not to be a CEO. I feel like I'm a better board member than I would be a CEO. And partly that's because I find managing people stressful. Um, 
So there's a lot less stress. You know, I'm sure some board members would think that it's much more stressful depending on your company. But, um, you know, the managing the people, I care deeply about the people and therefore that sometimes became quite stressful, particularly if you had to, um, you know, make people redundant. Uh, You know, I I hated doing that. So it suited my skill set and it also suited my, you know, being a mum. So... You know, the, the amazing thing about board roles is that you can craft a portfolio um, around your availability. So, you know, you can take on as many or as few board positions as you can um, sort of fit in. And the days that you don't have board meetings, you can actually do a, a school hours um, a day if you want. So, yeah, whereas, you know, being a CEO is tough if you're, a, if you're you know, any kind of parent, but yes. <laughs> particularly mum. Yeah. So you you were, I guess, a pioneer of uh, of flexible working because you managed to, um, if you like, do that from 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 quite a young age. And you know, that's probably only COVID has maybe acted as a catalyst for many people to adopt a more a flexible approach. So you know, as in that sort of earlier time of that, what was it that enabled you to do that? Was and and I guess how you approached the idea of maybe being different from many colleagues who were who were there all the time. Yeah, so it it was very unusual at the time to have a general manager role at CBA and work part-time. And it was something that I knew I wanted to do. And at the time, I fully expected to have to give up my GM role in order to work part-time. And, you know, it's interesting looking back because that was now 17 years ago. And you're right, COVID has been a catalyst and the other thing has been, um, you know, something like 70% of companies now have a flexible work policy. Well, at the time, you know, 17 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was very much dependent on your individual boss. Yes. And I was lucky, I, you know, I was working for a guy called John Pierce, and he agreed to me working part-time, which, you know, I'm forever so thankful for that because that changed the trajectory of my, probably my career and <laughs> where I am. Uh, now. And I, I also structured things a bit differently as well, because I actually went into work every day. Right. So I did flexible work, but I worked seven till one. So I, I think that that was a bit genius as well in its own way, because I worked, um, you know, you could have half a day with your baby and half a day at work and you didn't get treated like you were part-time at work. You 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 were always going to be there if something urgent came up. Um, and you know, to this day, I think it, you're better off spending a few hours a day with your child rather than the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look at it that way, I think. <laughs> it's probably the best. But I think that's interesting because most people, when they think of flexible working, think of entire days off and then they perhaps become a burden or obvious by their absence, if, if you like. So you've managed to find something that hasn't been widely adopted to my understanding. No, and I think our childcare system bakes in the um, full day because it's, you know, because of the way the, the cost of it works that you, you know, they do do half days, but it's actually often, you know, just as expensive as 70% of the full day kind of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier a sense of guilt, um, perhaps about that. These apartheid times in, in South Africa. And you, you, you wrote a book, um, which was called Not Guilty. Um, is that what it speaks to? Or is there other areas of your life that you... No. Are apologizing for uh, the not guilty refers to not not feeling guilty about um, 
you know, your time with your kids or time at work, actually. And I wrote the book when I was on maternity leave with my third child. And by that point, I, I felt, I almost felt like I had it nailed off, you know, trying to get the, <laughs> keep the balls in the air and, and, you know, enough time with each child that they, um, you know, felt, felt loved and adored. Yeah. You, you can ask them again. I'm sure they'll lots of therapy as an adult and think differently, but, um, you know, just trying to get that, that balance right. So, you know, it is interesting that I feel so guilty about the, you know, the, my time in South Africa, but yet, you know, I, I feel there's times that I do feel guilty with the children and it's funny, board positions goes in waves as well. Like, you know, February ends up being a really busy month, for example, and then you do feel guilty. But for the most part, I, I feel like I've got that balance. Um, yeah, pretty good. So it's the, uh, again, the, the pioneer of the, of the work-life, work-life balance. So one of the things, again, on, uh, in the investing for life concept is looking at changes people make and you know when we invest in companies if they're changing and the market hasn't noticed it they tend to be a good investment opportunity um you've recently completed a, a course known as the Hoffman process which um is about i guess making personal change can you maybe just sort of take us through um i guess why you uh went through that journey and you know what you think you you will get out of it on the on the other side yeah um interesting to know where to start with that I, I firmly believe we need to invest in ourselves yeah. generally, and we do very little personal development work. You know, if, if you if you had to do a survey, I imagine that less than ten percent of people would have done that. Yeah. I ended up doing the first one because um, my best friend actually he had transitioned from being a hairdresser to a coach and had set up his own coaching business with another friend. Um, and it was a, a little company called Dare to be Remarkable, and they'd put together this group course, and they wanted guinea pigs to do the first right. version of it. And I, you know, I went on that about fifteen years ago, and and you know, it was a little weekend course, but it was. It, I look back at how much I learned out of that, and it was it really, you know, because you think about your life goals and things like that, and then the Hoffman process, is, which is what I've just done recently. Um, a lot of my friends have done it and they, um, they highly recommend it to the point where one person said, actually almost got cross with me and said, I've told you this is really good and you haven't done it. What are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, it's an interesting course because a lot of it is around going back to your, the patterns of your mom and your dad and then, and tracing them back to your own patterns and these sort of, patterns of behavior that we get ourselves into that are not really, you know, functional. Um, and, but it's very confronting, a very confronting process, actually. They're, you know, you're, you're eight days away. It was held in Byron and they take away your phone, no contact, a lot of sort of visualizations, meditation. There was a lot of tears. Um, so, uh, but it was, you know, it kind of makes you think differently about, about your life and, and how you're living it. And, you know, one of the confronting questions they asked me is what, do, what does your life look like without achievement? And I thought, oh gosh, <laughs> that's what I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> so, so, so does it, does it sort of, do you come away from that with specific goals or is it more reflective on, on what is, do you, like, do you think it affects change or do you think it merely tells you why you are the way you are? 
it, it definitely affects change. I think I came out a complete mess, actually. <laughs> so I'm just waiting for it to dawn on me. <laughs> but, you know, and there was, there's, there was sort of lots of, you know, you do a bit of visioning of the future. So that was an important component. You do this understanding of your own behaviors and patterns. So that was a, a kind of, uh, useful aspect. There was a bit around actually healthy dealing with anger, yeah. which I realized I probably could improve on. <laughs> and funnily enough Deep with breath. me, no, 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 my, mine's the opposite. I don't do anger. Okay. <laughs> I realized that I probably have to do more of it. <laughs> Become more angry. There you go. <laughs> There's a goal for you. And 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 you also uh, shared with me before that you, you would like to do a, a, a long meditation, a long silent meditation, I guess, why is that? What do you? What would you expect to, to to get from that? Yeah, listen, I don't know whether this is motivated by you know having turned fifty a couple of years ago, midlife crisis, <laughs> and wondering where I'm going. But <laughs> yeah, um, I, I just have a strong pull at the moment towards uh, you know um, uh, you know more some sort of spiritual path, enlightenment. But uh, you know the bit of meditation that I have done, I've started to feel that sort of connectedness. And I just want to do more of that, actually. Yeah. And it's very interesting. The the thing that dawned on me in the course was actually the, you know, this sort of juxtaposition of a sort of achievement mouse wheel that you could say that I've been on my whole life versus this sort of being drawn into, you know, sort of more of an inward journey, actually. So, you know, I've got a very clear view that that's sort of where I should be spending more of my time. And and the future for you, a lot of it is about indulging various causes and and passions. Maybe yeah. you want to share with us some of the things that that sort of um, excite you. Yeah. So this is another sort of gift, and I don't even know where I got this from. But that that realization of what really gives you energy, which part of your work energizes you, makes you feel motivated, and you know, and to think and reflect on those times. And when I've, when I think of that, I mean, I actually, I love being in a boardroom and making decisions. So, you know, tick on from a work point of view. I don't so much like reading very long papers and reviewing minutes, but no. <laughs> it comes, it does come with the territory. Um, but yeah, the, the, when I look back, I, I did a little piece of work for Greenpeace quite a few years ago now where they, they asked me to help put, uh, some of their strategy into a, how to communicate it to a business audience. And and I absolutely loved doing that. And, um, you know, I got so much energy out of it. You could have, you know, dropped everything else just to work on this PowerPoint document. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and I got to speak to a lot of the Greenpeace staff and uh, realised how amazing they were. Uh, so, you know, I look back on those little moments and think, well, you know, what, what is it in that? I mean, yes, I do love producing PowerPoint documents. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but there's something about doing something to make a difference, and um, you know, so I, you know, do, do want to make sure that I have enough time in my life for for those things. And the environment is one. Uh, Greenpeace, uh, Mission Vale is is another that the African charity, and yes, I've also been um, supporting a political candidate. Again, funnily enough, motivated by, you know, lack of federal government policy on climate change, yeah. but also very strongly motivated by diversity. We need more women in Canberra. Yeah. Um, so I, I've found a very, um, a way where I can make a clear difference in a short amount of time, I think. So, uh, 
Yeah. So anyway, yes, I, I spend a lot of time on on lots of different things, which which I love. So that that the, the more women in Canberra. I mean, when you um, took over as the president of the Actuarial Institute, you also I think wrote a paper on you know needing more females in in the actuarial profession. I think the conclusion from memory was we really needed greater support for females in STEM. I know working in fund management, we have the same problem as well when trying to attract it's trying to attract more applicants as much as it is trying to um as anything else and i guess you're know, reflecting on that where do you think you know everyone can make a difference to try and help that cause because it's something i have two daughters it's, it's important to me it's important to the balance of a firm like ours it's obviously very important to you yeah well and you've raised a good example being funds management and you know, funnily enough, what I discovered in that process of trying to work out why only 30% of actuaries are female is it is, when you boil it down, it is actually an Australian cultural problem. And uh, the reason funds, fund managers don't have many women is probably the same one as engineers, as IT. Yeah. And one of the sort of most important stats is actually in extension maths. So the kids doing extension maths at school, only a third of them are female. So that's the feeder for actuaries, fund managers, accountants, um, you know, engineers. And when you peel that back and you go, well, why aren't girls doing extension maths? Because they're equally as good at maths. So, and really it, it is a, it is a cultural issue in Australia. And you know, again, one of the interesting um, little examples there is you look at um, uh, kids studying actuarial at university and it's about 30% female uh, for the Australian yeah. kids, but for the Chinese kids, it's 50-50. Yeah. So you realise, and if you look at Singapore, uh, Malaysia, you know, they have a much more even split. And someone recently told me that there's as many Chinese female billionaires as there are male. Okay. So when you see other countries have nailed the diversity, yeah. you realise, you know, how deep-seated some of our cultural issues are in Australia and we're not as sort of fine and dandy as you might think. So now I understand the Dutchness because I suspect that's one of the countries where they've actually got this a lot more right than we have just intuitively. Yeah, I, I don't know the Dutch stats actually, um, but yes, they are very good at that kind of stuff generally. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, just just to sort of um, sort of bring it all together, I'd, I'd love to get that sort of real sense of um, you, the, the sort of why. I mean, we're getting a, we're getting a real flavour for it. What you, if you had to sort of describe yourself in a in a sentence or really pull it together? What is it that that really makes you tick? Yeah, so I've, you know, I've thought quite a lot about what my purpose in life is. You know, with a strategy background, you're going, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, you apply the same strategy principles to your own life. And to me, it's not a goal or anything. It's more a sort of state of being. And I describe it as feminine strength and kindness. Those are the sort of three words that probably best describe, what, you know, what I'm trying to do. Excellent. Well, look, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I think all of these things have come through in our discussion. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed it too. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.